Please open your Bibles to the New Testament epistle of James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 13 through 8 today. And if you're wondering why we're starting in verse 13, uh, you may not know or you may not remember. It's been a little bit of time, but we covered verses 1 through 12 uh, back on August 20th, so a little bit of time ago. Uh, If you want to go back and refresh, you can do so via the website. But for today, we're going to turn our attention to reading God's Word, James 1, 13 to 18, as we look at right thinking and temptation. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will... He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. May God bless the reading of his word. There is a very quick and clear distinction from verses uh, 1 through 12 to verses 13 through 18. James, he transitions us from outward trials that clearly come from God to temptations that come from within. He is addressing the challenge that we are all faced with in the midst of our trials. Right thinking. Holding on to what is true. You see, we would all agree that trials have a way of wearing us down. You start off strong, but then as wave after wave crashes in upon you, or trial after trial, you become tired, beaten down, weary, your emotions begin to lead your life instead of what is true. You start to think then that you know what is best. And so you turn to what makes you feel good and attempt to find relief, comfort, and satisfaction. All the while failing to remember the truth of who God is in the midst of your circumstance. We all face this progression, and we all must fight every day to take our thoughts captive in order to obey Christ. You see, the spiritual war, it is fought in the battlefield of our minds. The spiritual war is fought in the battlefield of our minds. In James 1, 13 to 18, he arms us for right thinking in the midst of our temptations. And before I dive too deep into this passage, I did things a little bit differently. I think it would be beneficial for us to answer a common question that comes to us right up front. And I think by answering this question on the front end, it will help us to have better understanding and focus as we work through the text. So the question is, how can I know the difference between a test from God and a temptation from within? Well, the way that we know the difference is by your response and by the outcome. Okay, We will see clearly in the text that tests come from God and they result in obedience, which produces steadfastness and leads to life. And we see that in verses 4 and 12. But temptations, temptations on the other hand, they come from within. 
resulting in disobedience, which produces sin and leads to death, as stated in verses 14 and 15. I found this to be helpful. John MacArthur, he put it this way. He said, if a believer responds in faithful obedience to God's word, he successfully endures a test. If he succumbs to temptation in the flesh, doubting God's goodness in the trial and disobeying, he is tempted to sin by his own desire, not God. Tests from God produce steadfastness and leads to life. Temptations come from within and produce sin, which leads So with that understanding, we come to our first point in the command and temptation. Point one, the command and temptation. Verse 13 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Here we have James, as guided by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he clearly understood the natural progression of our human thought. And we must remember that his audience, those who he was speaking to, they were in the midst of the dispersion. They were spread out from among one another, living in various trials. So he is addressing a problem at that time, and I would also say a real problem in our time today, blaming God for temptation. Because it was, and it is to this day, a real problem, we could read verse 13 as saying, Stop saying, stop saying that it's God who is tempting you. The, the natural sinful thought process says that if my trial came from God, and in that trial I was then tempted and fell to sin, then God must have been the one who tempted me. For he's the one that led me to the test to begin with. And I would venture to say that at some point in time, the majority of us in here have followed this progression of thought in one form or another. You go through a test, you fail, and then you begin to ask God, why did he do that to you? Saying, God, if you would not have put me in that situation, if you would not put me to the test, then I would not have sinned against you. And this is not new, but it's from the beginning. It's a response from sin, pride, and it's an attempt to justify our sin. We shift the blame to anyone and everyone other than ourselves. It's an attempt to blame God. And we can see where this all began. We're going to. Let's turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Keep your finger in James because we will refer back to it. But Genesis chapter 3 is where this all began. We see it clearly. Verses 9 through 13, it's a very familiar passage. The fall of mankind. Adam failed to obey the one command that was given to him. And then we see his response as well as Eve's response. Genesis 3, 9 to 13. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Adam was asked if he had eaten from the tree, and how did he respond? 
the woman whom you gave me caused me to. It's as if Adam is saying, Lord, you are the one that gave this woman to me, which led to my temptation and ultimately my sin. Therefore, it's not my fault. Shifting blame to justify his sin. Shifting it ultimately to God. But what about Eve? Well, she responds in the same manner. God asks Eve, what has she done? And her response was, it was the serpent. Both of them were very quick to place blame upon something other than themselves. And we do the same. How quickly we attempt to justify our sin because of our shame. We want to shift that blame to anyone and to anyone or to everyone except ourselves. We shift it to God, to those around us, to our family, to our friends, because we don't want to take personal responsibility. We see this played out in various ways around us. One of the clearest examples that I see very frequently, those of us who are parents with young children, what happens? They get into a battle, a dispute, and we ask the same question that God asks, what did you do, and what is their immediate response? Or they say it verbally, it wasn't me, it was him, it was her, it was the other person, I didn't do anything. And we didn't have to teach them that, right? They know it on their own. We see it even in greater extremes in our society, in our culture today. We see this played out in the extent of homosexuality and gender confusion all around us. What do we hear? Well, I can't help that I was born this way. Or it's not my fault that I was born with these desires, In translation, God made me this way. It's his fault. And there's many errors with those statements, but ultimately it's an attempt to blame God and to justify sin. But then we come to James 1.13. James 1.13, talking to every single person, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. You see, when tempted, you and I are commanded never to tempt or blame God. And and how do we know that God never, and I mean absolutely never, tempts anyone at any point in time to sin? Well, because James backs it with what is known as a universal or an absolute truth of God's character. A universal or an absolute truth, it never changes. Okay, No matter what time period, No matter what circumstance, no matter what culture, what location, the stated truth always remains the same. And yes, we do have absolute truth. We have it at our very fingertips. And here we're given the proof of how we know that temptations are not from God. Look at the text. It very clearly says, for God cannot be tempted with evil. In the Greek, it's saying, for God is inexperienced with evil. Therefore, he cannot provoke anyone to sin. You see, because his character is absolutely disconnected from evil, he has absolutely no experience with evil or connection with it. He did not create it. He is not tempted by it. He has no vulnerability to evil. It does not affect him in any way. God's character is alien to evil. 
And because of that absolute truth that does not change, he cannot tempt you or I. He cannot provoke you to sin because it's not in him. It's not from him. And this should give us great confidence and peace in the God that we serve. I love how one commentator said it. He said, put your faith in a God of pure goodness. A God of pure goodness. Is that your understanding of who God is? Pure goodness? It's almost impossible to even comprehend, isn't it? That God is pure goodness. James knows that in every test, that temptations will come. But here he he slams the door. He shuts the door completely on the idea of blaming God for the temptation or blaming God for sin in your life. So when you are being tested, do not allow yourself to shift the blame to God for your own temptations. Again, we have to fight to take every thought captive in order to obey Christ. We have to remember that God is pure goodness, that he's inexperienced with evil and holy in every way. Well, here we've seen the command and temptation, so now we move to point two, the cause and temptation, the cause and temptation. Verses 14 to 15, if you haven't already, turn back to James, verses 14 and 15, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, if it's not from God, then we have to ask the question, well, where does temptation come from? And this is critical for right thinking. Every trial does bring temptation with it. You see, when we face financial difficulty, or if we face financial security, we are tempted to distrust God's provision. When someone dear to us dies, we're tempted to question God's love and goodness towards us. When we experience unjust suffering, we are tempted to impugn God's justice ourselves. But know this, you are responsible for your temptations. And verses 14 to 15 make it clear that the cause of your temptation is your own desire. Okay, the word here for desire is the same word that's used for lust, for craving, coveting, or to long for. Okay? And the cause of your temptation is your own lust when you are lured and enticed by your own desires. And I want to be careful here. We can't think of lust or desire as if it only applies to sexual temptation. Because that is not what the text is saying. Here in the text, it actually refers to a deep, strong desire or longing of any kind. Of any kind. I would also caution us not to think of or point to or maybe elbow that person next to us to make sure that they are listening. Because James is speaking to every one of us individually. Both you and I need to self-reflect before wishing that someone else hears what's being said from the text. He makes that point very clear. Verse 13, let no one, verse 14, but each person. This refers to every single one of us just the same. To you as much as your spouse, to you as much as your children, to myself just as much as you. But there is a difference. The difference is in the desires. 
You see, the text is speaking to every individual, but the lusts, the desires, differ from person to person. The enticement is individualized. And sure, some of us in here may share similar temptations, but there are some things that will definitely tempt me more than you. There are some things that will tempt your spouse more than you, or your children more than you, or even your church family more than you. So this requires each individual to be aware of what does tempt you. And then we must fight against it to stay away from it and to kill it, kill those desires. Through my studies, I came across a quote, and it says, I can resist everything except temptation. And, and I thought about that and really how true it is. Right? I can exist, or resist everything except what? My own temptations because I am not tempted by what you might be tempted by. The desires are individual because it comes from within. This should challenge us. It should challenge you. It should challenge I to be mindful of how we live our lives so that we do not bait one another into temptation or entice even our children into temptation. Although I might not be tempted by something that you may be, and because of satisfaction in Christ, we should be willing to give up anything for one another. If we are truly satisfied and fulfilled in Christ, we should be willing to give up anything for one another. Each one of us should desire to grow in holiness, both individually and corporately, as Christ's bride. The, the goal for all of us is to be presented mature in Christ. And we have to fight for that together. See, James 14 and 15, he is giving us a strong word picture here. He says that each person is lured and enticed by his own desire. Lured and enticed, these are actually hunting and fishing terms. And in this case, I, I actually like how the NIV translation reads this. I think it helps us see a better picture of what is happening. And the NIV reads, each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. See, being dragged away, it implies that there is something that you're being dragged away from. That there is something or someone that is better to hold on to. And we see this in the picture of, of hunting and fishing, as I mentioned. Many of you know that when you hunt, you have to set or utilize different lures. You might lay out salt blocks. Some of you might have done that this weekend. You might utilize the scent, rattle antlers during rut season. And you're, you're attempting to lure or to drag away that big buck that you've been watching from their current surroundings. And the deer responds to that lure by being drawn away and into your line of sight. And the same is true for the word entice. Entice, this is a fishing term. Maybe you don't like to hunt, but you like to fish. You take the worm, you cover the hook to entice the fish to respond. And it appears to be something other than what it really is. Well, in both of these examples, the bait, it looks attractive. It's now available. And that animal, the deer, the fish, they look around. Is anyone else watching? Now it appears safe to them. 
And in their mind, it becomes acceptable. And then they respond because of their desire. But they fail to see that arrow that's pointing at them or that hook that leads to their death. And it's the same for you and I in temptation. James says that you are being dragged away. You're being lured, diverted from what is more important and baited by the evil desire within you. That temptation that has been set before you, it's attractive to you. It becomes available to you. And then in your eyes, it becomes acceptable. And in your mind, you forget what is true because of what you desire. And then what do you do? The next step, you begin to design a plan. You design a plan to partake in it. Many of you right now might be thinking of what it is that you desire, what you struggle with, what lures you. And now I hope that God will show you how you begin to design a plan to partake in it each time. And this is one example that I came across uh, that I think helps highlight the point. It was a story of a man who was on a diet. He was attempting to lose weight, and each day that he drove to work, he had to pass a donut shop, of all things. And as he passed the bakery, he would pray for strength to resist that temptation. He prayed, God, if you don't want me to have that donut, then make sure the parking lot's full. As he drove by, the lot was full, so he continued driving. But on the sixth time that he circled around the block, <laughs> right, a parking spot became available, so he stopped to have a donut. Although it is a silly example, I think it makes the point clear that more often than not, we design plans to keep our temptations near to us because we desire them. You know that your smartphone leads you to sin, but you leave every app on it. You take it to bed with you at night. You refuse to give anyone else your password, and on and on. And that's just one simple example. I'm sure it can be replaced with many others. It's the natural process that each one of us follow. Your desires, your emotions, they naturally deceive you, and then you design a plan to fulfill your own lusts. You figure out a way to set time aside to indulge yourself. You design a plan to put yourself next to a particular someone. Or you make a plan to seclude yourself from others so that you can be alone. You see, what you do, you intentionally arrange your schedule with your lust as the first priority. Your desires have led to deception, which led you to design a plan, and it gives birth to disobedience. Look at verse 15 again. Then desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The text literally means that once desire is conceived, meaning that once you impregnate your desire by your design, it will give birth to sin. You took the bait, forgetting that the hook leads to death. As I was studying this and reading through this, it jumped out to me, so I think it's interesting and also important to notice who is not mentioned in the text. Do you see who is missing? From this passage? 
Do you see who it does not say who is tempting you? Well, who did Eve blame? The serpent, Satan, the devil himself. So maybe you're not shifting blame to God, but do you shift the blame to Satan? Saying that Satan is really the one that's tempting me. Right? Too often we give Satan too much credit as if he is omnipotent, meaning that he is all-powerful, or omnipresent, meaning that he's all-present. See, he might be the one that baited the hook, but you're not tempted by him. You're tempted by what you see because that is what you desire. And we have to realize that if you shift the blame to anyone other than yourself, then you fail to see what the problem really is. We fail to see the point of what James is teaching us. The responsibility for temptation and sin, it always lies within. There is no one else to blame. In comparison, in verse 13, we saw the nature of God as pure goodness. And what we're seeing now in 14 and 15 is the nature of mankind as totally depraved. As Romans 7, 18 says, For I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my flesh. Or Romans 3, 10 to 12, a very familiar passage. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. See, James is telling us that there is no inherent goodness in anyone, for only God is good. What we have inherited, what you and I have inherited, is guilt and sinful nature. And this is right thinking that is needed so that we never place blame upon God. Ultimately, it's the right foundation that is necessary to understand the gospel correctly. If you fail to understand your sin, you will fail to see the beauty of the gospel. As one commentator said, to correctly understand the gospel, you take full blame upon yourself where it belongs, realizing that your enemy, your fallenness, your lust, your weaknesses, your rationalizations, your sins are within and have to be dealt with from within. As Matthew 5.3 says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And this is meaning that you realize that you are spiritually dead within, apart from Christ. Then you will understand your need for the Savior and the true meaning of his grace. We've seen the command and temptation, the cause and temptation that's from within, and now we come to the power over temptation, the power over temptation, verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth, and by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Do not be deceived. It simply means do not be misled. It's James is literally saying to us, do not be lured. Do not be dragged away. Do not be baited by the trap of your own desires. And also, do not be deceived in thinking that God is ever the cause of temptation. 
You see, in one sense, it's looking back at the previous verses, but in another sense, it's also looking forward at what the correct response is. You see, it's never enough for us to simply refrain from the negative command, but we must also engage with the positive. You cannot say, well, I don't blame God, but instead blame Satan. Both of those miss the mark. So you must rightly think of the truth of who God is. And I believe that this is a great example of what it looks like to preach to yourself. We know that we are going to face trials that come from God. And we also know that every trial will carry with it a temptation due to our own desires. So James is telling us, don't be deceived in those. Do not blame God. Do not be misled. But preach to yourself and rightly think that God is always good and gives perfect gifts. Take every thought captive. Remind yourself of who God is and be satisfied in God alone. Again, James is appealing to the very nature of who God is. He's doubling down, basically, on God's pure goodness. He says every good gift comes from above. Because not only is he inexperienced with evil, and has nothing to do with sin, but positively, he is the father of light. 1 John 1, 5, this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. James here in verse 17 is is really building another image for us. The phrase, father of lights, and no variation of shadow due to change, it appeals to creation. This again, it's pointing us to a universal, absolute truth. It applies to all people, every culture, every time period. never changes. Because God created and ordered the stars, the moon, the sun, and the other planets, which all change to indicate seasons and years. They shift, they rotate. They create shadows. God controls all of these things because he is the father of lights. In comparison, James is comparing creation against God as the creator. There's no variations. There's no shadows. He never changes. But instead, he gives us what is good and what is perfect. James is telling us, look back to the creation account. What did God do when he had created everything? God looked at everything he made and said, behold, it was very, that was pretty weak. It was very good. It was very good because God is pure goodness. He only creates what is good and he only gives what is good. And that truth never varies. In the words of Malachi 3, 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. You see, the power over temptation is to know, to trust in, and be satisfied in the Father of light, the Father of all things that are good. No matter what trial you're in, what temptation you face, We are to ask God for wisdom and how to respond. 
Right? And this passage in chapter 1, it goes back even to verse 5. It tells us that God gives generously. And verse 17 tells us that what he's giving us is good and perfect. I love how Alec Matier says it. He says, there is no way in which we might come to him in our need and find that he is unwilling, unable, or unavailable. We need to always remember and contrast that God is good, he is able, and he is faithful. If you're fully satisfied in the good gifts that God gives, then why would you want to give in to your own desires? Why would you want to pay tribute to sin? Again, Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's referring to hungering and thirsting for Christ's righteousness. For they shall be satisfied. So is God more attractive? Is he more available and acceptable to you than your desires? Does his gifts satisfy you? The only way that any of us can have power over temptation and be satisfied is through Christ alone. And here we come to verse 18, which is really the heart of the power over temptation. Let's reread verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In verse 14, we saw that our hearts were totally depraved. We, by nature, desire what is evil. We allow our desires, as I said, to be impregnated with our design, which gives birth to sin and brings death. But verse 18, we see his desire. It says, of his own will, put us forth by the word of truth. The comparison says that you birth sin and death, but he births new life. Brought us forth, it literally means to give birth to. It's performing the final act of childbirth, resulting in a child entering into the world. But in this case, it's saying that you're being birthed to new spiritual life. The contrast is very clear. Again, Your will gives birth to sin, and the wages of sin is death. But of his own will, he gives birth to new spiritual life, which brings the crown of life. Once you were spiritually dead, but God caused you to be brought forth into new life. I'm going to ask you to turn just a couple of pages to the right in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, and, and this was just so good that I could not pass it up. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 7, and listen closely to what Peter is also telling us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept for you in heaven, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, 
though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Do you see how Peter is really encapsulating everything that James is talking about? According to his great mercy, he has caused you, a sinner, to be born again. You were brought forth, given new birth, given a living hope, an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance that is being kept for you by God's power. These are good and perfect gifts. And in that, we can rejoice. Even though right now you're grieved with various trials. Why? Because they're necessary to test you and to prepare you. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. Another example is Philippians 1.29. It says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, that's new birth, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. That's what's been granted to us. This is so that you are presented mature on the day of the Lord. For a moment here, I want to talk to the unbelievers that are in the room. If you continue to shift your blame to anyone or anything other than yourself, you will never see your sin. You will never fully understand God's grace or your need for his mercy. And Jesus makes it very clear that unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. So until you understand that the problem, it's not out there, but it's within yourself, you will not know him or his great love. You will not know his goodness and his perfect gift of new life. You must see your sin. You must confess your sin knowing that you are spiritually dead apart from Christ and believe that he, Jesus alone, stood in your place on the cross, paying the wages of your sin, which is death. You must believe that he rose again from the dead on the third day, he, and then he ascended into heaven. And this proves that God's wrath was satisfied. It was satisfied for the sins of those who love him. If you believe those truths, then repent of your sinful desires. That means to turn away from your lusts. Stop making design plans to partake in them. Turn away from sin and turn to obedience in Christ. Only in Christ be able to be satisfied. For the believers that are here today, we are commanded to stop blaming God. We must continue in living a life of repentance, turning away from our sinful desires that are within us, fighting to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. You see, repentance, it is a fruit of your salvation. So we must continually repent every day, fighting sin and fighting for holiness. As James taught us, preach to yourself, rightly thinking that what God has given you is a good and perfect gift. And we can rejoice that he has brought us forth, that he has caused us to be born again. B. 
be ever growing in your satisfaction of Christ through his word. And then on that day, because of your faithfulness, and because your faithfulness was purified through your trials, as his word tells us, you'll then be presented perfect, complete, lacking in nothing, and will be presented to your heavenly Father as first fruits of his creatures. So how are you facing your trials? Are you facing them in faithful obedience to God's word, successfully enduring the test, or are you succumbing to temptation and the flesh, doubting God's goodness and disobeying? You see, God's word demands a response. One way or the other, it demands a response. So I plead with you today, turn to Christ, both unbeliever and believer alike. It's something that we have to continually fight for and do. And remind yourself and rightfully think in the midst of your trials or in the midst of your temptation that God is pure goodness and he gives what is good and perfect. So turn to him who is able to keep you from stumbling to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, you alone are good. You alone are the one that can change our hearts and bring us forth into new life. Lord, I pray that the words of James rings loud in each ear here today. That each person would see their sinful desires and turn from them. And if that they don't know you personally, that God, you would work a new heart in them today. Thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us confidence in who you are. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.